Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn the history and the process of how America's empire, which currently spans the globe, was built and what principles we have held firmly to from beginning to end. Before we get started, though, I have a couple of thoughts for you. Obviously, this is a, a, a touchy subject because everyone tends to love the country they're from. Maybe none more than Americans love for America. So I have no doubt that today's episode will will challenge some people, but I don't think it should anger people. I don't think it should offend people. And what I want to point out before we even get started is how impersonal this is, how no one is being described as an evil person with an evil plan. No one is being accused of having set out to harm anyone else. So today's show is meant to give a a fuller, more nuanced understanding of history, and it describes the story of a system of cultural thought, mostly racism, and how that plays out in the physical world, not about individual people being bad or people today who have pride in their country being wrong or bad or anything like that. So I want you to come away from this episode with a a more nuanced understanding of, of history, but not so that you have something to feel bad about or guilty about. It's so that you can understand how America is seen from much of the outside world so that you can take that information and then advocate for policies in the modern era that take that history into consideration. Because, you know, if, if you want to hang on to that image of the shining city on the hill or whatever, you can't just stay inside the city walls and assume that your city is shining. You have to look at it from the outside to see it how others do. So that's what we're doing today. And to help us do that, clips today come from On the Media, Let's Talk Native, Making Contact, featuring the documentary Harvest of Empire, The Majority Report, and This is Hell. By 1898, most of America seems all in on this imperialism idea. Maps were redrawn and hung in classrooms across the country, maps that we certainly didn't grow up with, that showed us America in the world as it truly was. It's an extraordinary moment. In 1898 and 1899, the United States basically goes on a sort of imperial shopping spree. It fights a war with Spain, and as a result of that war, it takes the Philippines, Guam, and Puerto Rico, and it briefly occupies Cuba. And at the same time, almost in a fit of enthusiasm, the United States also annexes Hawaii and American Samoa. And cartographers see their opportunity and start publishing these extraordinary new maps, new maps that show the U.S. mainland surrounded by boxes. So Alaska, Hawaii, Guam, Puerto Rico, American Samoa. Why these are so extraordinary, at least for me, is when I saw them, I thought, you know, I've never seen a map like that. I'd never seen a map of the United States that had Puerto Rico on it. I'd never seen a map of the United States that had that box for Guam. But this is a moment when a lot of people on the U.S. mainland are so proud of this new facet of the United States that they are eager to see it differently. I found books that have titles like The Greater United States, The Imperial Republic, The 
old way of referring to the country as the United States, the Republic, or the Union in the 19th century, those don't really work anymore because it's now transparently not, not a republic and not a union. This new polity, quite transparently, has not been created by the voluntary entry of all parts. The Philippines fights a bloody war of independence that we think racks up more bodies than the U.S. Civil War. So explain the Philippines. It partly has to do with Teddy Roosevelt. He's the assistant secretary of the Navy. His boss leaves the office for an afternoon to visit an osteopath. And Roosevelt springs into action and orders the U.S. Asiatic fleet to prepare to invade Manila if the United States has a war with Spain. And his boss doesn't countermand the order, possibly fearing looking weak. And so when the United States does go to war with Spain, it engages the Spanish fleet, defeats it, and suddenly the United States has the Philippines on its hands. Not suddenly. Takes a while. Right. The actual conquest of the Philippines takes an enormous amount of time. Part of the reason the United States is in a good position vis-a-vis the Philippines is that the United States has allied itself with Filipino insurgents who've been fighting against Spanish colonialism for quite a long time. And they think that they're doing so in the name of liberating their colony. With the aid of the United States, they're able to conquer the archipelago. The United States ends the war by purchasing the Philippines from Spain, but then it has to deal with these Philippine insurgents and ends up fighting a long and excruciatingly bloody war. The Philippine archipelago isn't restored to civilian rule until 1913 and was only recently surpassed by the Afghanistan War as the longest war in U.S. history. On what grounds did the U.S. go to war for the Philippines? Because the U.S. was still hesitant to say, we do this for the sake of empire. The U.S. was never quite as frank about this as, say, the British were. Well, this is a really interesting and rare moment in U.S. history where the leaders of the country will start talking like the British The reason that the United States needs to fight the Philippines and fight to retain the Philippines is in order to civilize and uplift Filipinos. The most famous poem, Justifying Empire, Rudyard Kipling's White Man's Burden, is written as advice to the United States about what to do in the Philippines. Take up the white man's burden. Send forth the best ye breed. Go bind your sons to exile to serve your captives' need. To wait in heavy harness on fluttered folk and wild, your new court sullen peoples, half devil and half child. Teddy Roosevelt receives an advanced copy, but a lot of politicians are deeply enthusiastic about this notion that the United States could achieve its adulthood by becoming, like Britain, like France, a transparent and forthright empire that's taken on the white man's burden to uplift and to educate its colonial subjects. That's the rhetoric of the time. You quote Mark Twain, who had been as ardently imperialistic as Rudyard Kipling, but then reversed himself, quote, There must be two Americas, one that sets the captive free and one that takes a once captive's new freedom away from him, picks a quarrel with him with nothing to found it on, and then kills him to get his land. For that second America, he proposed adding a few words to the Declaration of Independence, governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed white men. That's right. Mark Twain and Kipling were friends, and initially, Mark Twain had been, as he described it, a red-hot imperialist. 
But as he saw the war in the Philippines start to unfold, he came to be one of the most withering critics of the war, just as vociferously anti-imperialist as Kipling was pro-imperialist. And for the rest of his life, he would chronicle with sarcasm, with outrage, everything that the United States was doing in the Philippines, the massacres, the tortures, the hypocrisy. We usually think of the war as catapulting the United States into the position of global leadership with a larger military, a more bustling economy than anywhere else. Actually, the war did something else too. It gave the United States a lot of territory, so much territory that there were more people living in its colonies and occupied zones like Japan than were actually living in the States. If you looked up at the end of 1945 and you saw a U.S. flag flying overhead, it was more likely that you were living in a colony or occupied zone than you were actually living on the U.S. mainland. Truman saying, We do not seek for ourselves one inch of territory in any place in the world. FDR said it. Everyone said it. But people are like, we're going to keep Micronesia, right? (laughs) I mean, suddenly our borders are malleable. It's a moment when the United States has the ability to decide what its territorial destiny will be. It could take a lot of that territory. It could convert its occupations into annexations if it wanted to. And when Truman says the thing that so many past presidents had said, we covet no territory, there's a scandal about that. The State Department complains, the military complains, the public complains. Are you really saying that we're going to give up all the land that we fought so hard to get, the places where we've planted our flag? And they're particularly concerned about Micronesia, which is a sort of buffer zone between Japan and the western parts of the United States, including Hawaii. That's where a lot of the bloody fighting had happened in World War II. And the idea of the United States surrendering this strategically valuable space, that's hard for a lot of people to countenance. And in fact, Truman amends his statement. Outside the right to establish necessary bases for our own protection, we look for nothing. We're going to keep what we need to preserve our security. In that moment, right after World War II, when the United States has so many options territorially, the end of World War II brings a worldwide revolt centered in Asia against empire. Formerly colonized people have often seen their empires dislodged, often by Japan. They have access to arms. They've heard the idealistic speeches of FDR that this war is not a war for empire. This is a war for liberation, which produces a sense of shame, which makes it a lot harder for powerful countries to insist that empire is right and proper. And that's just how civilization goes without fearing the kind of real on the ground and possibly violent resistance that they'll face in the colonies. The cost of colonialism has gone up. So that's one of the trends. The other one is that there are new ways to project power worldwide without controlling vast swaths of territory. A lot of these are technological. We can now produce a kind of nitrogen-based fertilizer that replaces guano. We needed rubber, and we developed fake rubber. We got plastic. And then basically all we really needed were military bases. That's exactly right. So on the one hand, the United States figures out how to generate synthetic substitutes for a lot of things that it formerly depended on colonies for. Rubber is a really good example. At the start of the war, the United States has a rubber crisis. Well, Charlie, 
This is one of the last rubber tracks we'll get. That's right. If we don't get rubber, we'll have to stop making good tanks. And the reason it has a rubber crisis is that Japan has seized a number of European and U.S. colonies in Southeast Asia in rich rubber-growing lands. And it looks to a lot of people like the U.S. economy is just going to fall flat on its face because you can't fight a war, it turns out, without rubber. What happens, and this is a surprise to a number of people who live through this and are watching it, is that the United States figures out how to make rubber, not from rubber plantations, but from petroleum, from oil, of which it has a great deal. And so suddenly it's done a sort of colonies for chemistry swap that it allows it to no longer depend for strategic reasons on tropical colonies. Rubber is one example. Plastic, which is also honed during the war, replaces any number of tropical products and allows the United States to sort of be immune to the desire to colonize large places so that it can control for strategic reasons their economies. We got radio to facilitate communications. It used to be the case that if you wanted to send a secure message from one part of the planet to another, you had to send it through a wire. And if you wanted that to be secure from sabotage, interruption, or espionage, you had to control all of the territory along that wire. And so the British Empire was obsessed with getting a large telegraphic network that went only through British-controlled territories, hmm. so its adversaries couldn't snip its cables or listen in. But the world of radio brings something different. With radio, you can just control one transceiver in one spot, another in another spot, and beam the message from one to another. Now, people can still listen in, but if you get really good at encrypting your messages, you can solve that problem as well. A similar thing happens in transportation, as you see a world that goes from surface-hugging transportation, such as steamships, cars, trucks, and railroads, to a world where, ultimately, if you need to get something from point A to point B, and you don't control the territory in between, you can transport it by plane. The United States gets really good at using plane and radio, and it figures out that, ultimately, when push comes to shove, what it really needs is just a series of well-situated points all across the planet. That's what you call a pointillist empire, which still endures today. Yeah, it's important to recognize that although the United States has distanced itself from colonialism, it no longer has the Philippines, Hawaii, and Alaska have become states. Puerto Rico underwent a constitutional change, although it's still very much a U.S. territory. But from a strategic perspective, that's not the core of the U.S. empire today. What the United States has is hundreds of overseas bases, places where it can land, places where it can detain people, places where it can repair, and places where it can store weapons. And that is really the face of power today for the United States. If you took all U.S. overseas territory today and mashed it all together, you would have a land area that's less than the size of Connecticut. They may be small, but oh boy, are they important. When you understand what these what these popes and and it was popes over uh, it was over a hundred years of these papal bulls that would be issued from again from the the mid fifteenth century into the sixteenth century that these that a series of these papal decrees would come down empowering 
the uh, the monarchies of Europe to commit all kinds of heinous acts against Native people. And of course, the church would would try to soften it a little bit. I mean, that's again when you when you see this film, uh, even the rain, you'll see that there was challenges that uh, some of the church leaders was um, Bartolome de la Costas in particular was one of those guys who who condemned and actually would bring charges against uh, some of the, the, the Spanish rulers that were uh, committed the, committing atrocities. But you know what? None of those atrocities were ever, um, uh, ever really faced. And we sit here today in, in debates and, and conversations about reparations over slavery, about reconciliation for the, the, the act of genocide, both on the Canadian side and the U.S. side of that imaginary line. We can't even have a meaningful conversation. Instead, what we do is we, we switch the words around. We, we play, we do some wordsmithing. We don't say genocide. We say cultural genocide. As if they took away our, what, our beads? No, there is no such thing as cultural genocide. Because if you try to eliminate a people by stripping away their culture, that's still genocide. Assimilation is still genocide. Taking children away and putting them in a school where their hair is cut and their language is, is, is stripped away and all of their, their cultural identity under a policy of kill the Indian, save the man, that's genocide. I mean, it's not just ethnic cleansing. I mean, it isn't. Uh, look, we had plenty of murder. We had plenty of rape. We have, we have plenty of theft of resources, lands, all of that stuff. But it isn't just the violent acts that constitute genocide. It is everything else. It's this, it is what the world would consider war crimes, this idea of stripping away the character of a people and imposing another nation's character on them. That was regarded as a war crime. It used to be called denationalization. <clears throat> but they would, they would say, look, that doesn't characterize it properly. So they, they began to, uh, to define that as genocide. And they clearly detailed what constituted genocide. It wasn't just murder. It was murder, but it wasn't just murder. It wasn't just this, just this notion of violent um, uh, ethnic cleansing. It was the idea of creating the conditions that would create a circumstance where people would cease to exist. And that's, that's the world that we live in. I mean, and, and this ties to everything. It ties to everything from... Our, our debate over things like, like the mascot issue. I mean, it, it, it ties directly to this, this notion that, that white people could view us as only relics or, or only as people related to a previous people. In fact, the definition of indigenous and aboriginal as used by the international community is not that we are those people, that we are mere descendants of those people. And that's the problem that many of us have with that language. Look, I use the word indigenous, but I feel like I've got to qualify it and, 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 and explain it. Because I am not a descendant of Mohawks or of Ganyagahaga. I am Ganyagahaga. Uh, I am Ongwenwe. I'm not the descendant of a people. I'm not the descendants of survivors of genocide. I am a survivor of genocide. And there's a difference. We aren't merely the descendants. And I don't care how much... Um, this imposed assimilation occurs. It doesn't matter that I speak English. <laughs> That's not what defines me. So 
this is the the conversation that that needs to be had about about all of this. We need to have this conversation because what gets missing in all of this is that we are still here and and although there are plenty of people who will wave the American flag and they'll pledge allegiance and they'll sing the national anthem, there's also a a growing number of of native people who are saying no, that's not who I am. That's not what defines me. I'm Gunyagahaga. I'm Ongwe. I'm Anishinaabe. I'm I'm Lakota. I'm Dene. There's a growing number of people who are saying no. I am not the labels that have been imposed upon us. That's not that's not who we are. So it is important that people understand that to, to teach real history, we've got to go back to the beginning of this thing. Because again, it is important to understand that the whole notion of of imperialism, of uh, of the, of that colonial period, colonization in general, it wasn't born out of this this you know this manifest destiny uh, you know and this notion that um, uh, the American spirit of the Western uh, expansion. No, it starts with the Vatican. It starts with papal bulls from the from from a whole series of popes that say no, you go out there and you find the lands that we haven't yet discovered. You we want you to go to the lands that are unknown to us, and spread Christendom. That's why they called it. You know what they? You know we we use that expression manifest destiny to describe this genocide, but it was also called white man's burden. And what was white man's burden? The white man's burden was. The obligation that he had, based on his his religion, to to impose that religion on everybody. That's what white man's burden was. It was to impose, and you know, and it wasn't just about conversion. And one of the things that we we saw time and time again, it wasn't about trying to convert every brown person to a, uh, to a Christian, because you know that wasn't important. What was important to them was the delivering of their souls. So if if a child, once they were baptized, it didn't matter if they lived or died. They got to check their box. They conver- That was con- considered a conversion. Didn't matter if they never made it to, to adulthood. The key was, <clears throat> could, we, we, could we claim that we were, what, we, what we were doing to these people was a part of our, of our Christian um, mission? The imposition of Christianity across the land regardless of what it did to the people. So, look, this almost this almost doesn't have anything to do with with the faith itself. It has to do with how the faith was used and how it was imposed and how it was used and oftentimes in conflict. I mean, these these armies, these conquistadors, these uh uh you know, these guys who would who would rape and murder and uh and uh and massacre native people. They did it in the name of their faith. <laughs> Colonel uh, uh, Reverend Sh- Reverend Shivington. I mean, this was this guy was a, was a colonel and, and a reverend at the same time. He was responsible for the Sand Creek massacre. So, in the name of his faith, he could he could kill as many native people as he wanted to, because he was felt justified. Why? Because of the, of the doctrine of Christian discovery. The doctrine of Christian domination. So, regardless of whether you know, and again, I I sometimes am puzzled 
by how black people and brown people can be so committed to a religion that was used so violently against them. But I get it. I get it. If you if you if you become um, indoctrinated into that faith, you still must recognize that the faith has fallibility. It is still wrong for a priest to rape a boy or a girl. It is wrong the the violence that took place not only in the name of this religion, but but by these religious leaders. It is still wrong. So whether it's the Pope or whether it's some, you know, uh, these these high-ranking cardinals in, in the Catholic Church or now the Baptist Church is getting exposed to it. But I got to tell you, if you want to see the foundation of of church clergy, clergymen, men of men of faith and women of faith, for that matter, and where this idea of uh, of pedophilia and violence against against children comes from, you only need to look at the residential schools. That's that's a a, a significant part of the origin of this um, uh, you know of this abuse, and it's a, and it was born specifically out of this notion that the church would authorize violence and aggression against uh, against non Christian people. Today's episode is sponsored by Bombas, and you probably don't think about your socks all that often. Or maybe you do, no judgment, but if you don't, it's probably because there's not that much to think about. Whereas I have been a convert to Bomba socks for years, and I still appreciate each pair for their style and comfort when I put them on. And they've even come out with a new line of my preferred choice, their performance running and workout socks, and I'm happy to see that they've evolved even further beyond all the fancy features that I liked them for before. But the thing that I think will put you over the top is their mission, which goes far beyond selling socks. The founders learned that socks are the number one requested item at homeless shelters, so they built Bombas from the ground up to sell great socks to customers and give away great socks to those in need, one for one. To take advantage of our special offer, buy your Bombas at bombas.com slash best today and get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash best for 20% off. Bombas.com slash best. As a journalist, since I've covered Latino communities across the country now for more than 30 years, and interviewed its leaders and had a sense of how those communities had been built, I felt that I should at least try to chronicle the story because the reality is that there's a reason why there are so many Mexicans, Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, Salvadorans in the United States. Because really, the major migrations come precisely from those countries that the United States once dominated and even occupied. If you had to pick one date where U.S. foreign policy towards Latin America went wrong, the date would be 1954 in the place Guatemala. Robert White is the former U.S. ambassador to El Salvador. That was the beginning of this terrible, terrible attitude that the United States developed towards 
Latin America, and particularly towards Central America, where change became our enemy. Guatemala was tremendo. Guatemala was unbelievable. 200,000 dead that we have accounted for, more than 50,000 missing. Rigoberta Menchu, Guatemalan political activist and 1992 Nobel Peace Prize winner. 83% of the disappeared and executed were Mayans. The pain is too strong. Our people will never be able to forget it. Guatemala was one of the few countries in Latin America that after World War II actually experienced a period of democratic rule. President Jacobo Arbenz was determined to reduce widespread poverty by effecting major land reform in Guatemala. Only 2% of the owners controlled 75% of the arable land, and of all those, the United Fruit Company was the largest, with some 600,000 acres of property. It was such a powerhouse, owning its own railroads, its own shipping lines. It really was more powerful than any government throughout uh, most of the 20th century. In fact, Latin America became the incubator for all the great American multinational companies. Two of the key principals in the U.S. government are John Foster Dulles, who was the Secretary of State under President Eisenhower. His brother, Alan Dulles, who was the head of the CIA, had both been law partners in the main law firm that represented United Fruit Company. Former CIA Division Chief Melvin Goodman. The feeling was we could very easily overthrow this progressive government and make it a lot easier for the United Fruit Company and other American businesses to operate uh, in Central America. The CIA got heavily involved in managing public opinion. It created the image of our bands as a crazy radical. And it was a systematic effort, mobilization and financing of opposition forces until the Arbenz government uh, was overthrown. A vicious repression of all progressives and supporters of the Arbenz government ensued. Guatemala really began to establish a new pattern whereby the United States government used covert operations, employed local proxies to destabilize and overthrow governments in the region. It's a great day for the liberation leader as the populace demonstrates its joy at being rescued from the tyranny that prevailed during the communist regime of ousted President Jacopo Abenz Guzman. The end of the Civil War, and more important, the end of another attempt by the Kremlin to get a foothold in the New World. After the overthrow, you have the beginnings of a civil war. People were picked up on the streets in the middle of the night, kidnapped, assassinated. 
you had the growth of a guerrilla war and of the government's efforts at counterinsurgency. As the rebels retreated into the countryside, they built up a very big support among the Mayan and Kanjobal people who had always been discriminated against by the Guatemalan government. The Civil War really went from about the 1960s to the 1980s. And as it escalated, the government responded with resettlement campaigns and a genocidal war against the Indians. What do we mean when we talk about, because you write about uh, essentially border imperialism. What do we mean by, by border in this context, and how has the concept of the border changed? Yeah, that's, the, that's, that's a big, maybe somewhat complicated question, but I'll, I'll try to um, uh, answer it as best as I can. Um, when, so one of the one of the things that happened, especially post 9-11, was a shift of of the um what the strategy, the the strategizing of customs and border protection and department of and then with the, the formation of the Department of Homeland Security. And if you go to um uh one of the uh strategists, uh Alan Burson, he was um a border czar under the Clinton administration. He was also worked for DHS under the Obama administration. He called it he said we started looking less at lines or both at lines, I wanna I wanna stress, and then flows of people. In other words, the as another or as many CBP commissioners have put it since then, and and it's also in the strategy papers, the border no longer is the first nor last line of defense, meaning that the border, um, the actual U.S., when you think of the border, if you think of the U.S.-Mexico border, that is only one layer, a prominent layer of what the border is, but the border actually ripples out internationally and actually and also there's an inter- interior portion of it and that's um when you when you begin to grapple the question of what the border is that's uh one way to look at it and i could give you some concrete examples of what that actually looks like if you'd like yeah yeah do and 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 i wonder um well why don't you give us those concrete examples and then we'll talk about um how much this was Theory, like how much of a philosophical change does it represent or simply, um, I mean, I am reminded of that era in the wake of 9-11 where uh, the, the, the cry was fight them over there so we don't have to fight them over here. On some level, it sort of feels like it's that same theory which um, uh, it was being employed. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. It is it is coming from that same basic theory. If you look at the the 9/11 Commission report that came out, I believe it was in 2003. It one of the things that it says is that the quote unquote the American homeland is the planet. So the idea of bringing the border out away, pushing it out away from the United States to to stop people or items or weapons of mass destruction, if you will, from 
from coming uh, to the United States long before they even get close to our borders. That's the official justification when you li- when you look at this kind of shift over to this internationalization. And I remember. Oh, go ahead. Well, I just wanted to ask you, like. Was there a change? I mean, I, you know, obviously we have a long history in this country of, of vilifying at different times uh, immigrants um, and exploiting them. Also, I mean, obviously, uh, in, in many ways, uh, structurally, we were set up to, to welcome them. Was there a fundamental change in the, in the sort of philosophical perspective of immigrants that needed to take place? I mean, just as I say, like fight them over there as opposed to over here. Well, they're immigrants. They're not, they're not terrorists. They're not uh, you know an invading army. They're they're potential immigrants. I mean, was there was there a I guess a concurrent change in the philosophical perspective of immigrants yeah i would i would say that's that's correct especially when you look at the post 9 11 um shifts and actually one person called it a massive paradigm shift as far as cbp is concerned but in that comes this this viewing of immigrants in through the lens of the uh you know of the post 9-11 reality. For example, when you know, uh, CBP or Customs and Border Protection didn't even exist, um, when 2001, in September 11, 2001, it, it was formed after that. And when it was formed, its priority mission was stopping web, uh, terrorists, quote-unquote terrorists and weapons of mass destruction from crossing U.S. borders. So you have, you have the setup of the CBP, if you look at the budgets going out of 2011 uh, to present, the budget started increasing in, in historic ways, unprecedented ways. And the justification was a terrorism justification. What, and, and so you get all these budgets coming in. You have um, all these resources going into the to, to building up a border apparatus, a border and immigration apparatus. Mind you, ICE, or Immigration and Customs Enforcement, was created also in 2003. So all these resources going going into this, um, under a, a counter-terror justification, but yet, as you say, um, what we have, what the, the, what they're, what these sorts of new, um, this this apparatus is impacting who this impact apparatus is impacting are in fact mostly immigrants immigrants coming from from particularly latin america the americas but even all over all around the world but under a kind of terrorism justification so if like following border policy in the 2000s for example you see this kind of uh you know what is what is coming you know are there terrorists coming across the border you know all this sort of rhetoric of 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 terrorism that sort of thing the budget's growing up but yet there's not one incident ever of a of a person at least that we know about of a person that's affiliated with a terrorist organization as known by the u.s government from cross crossing the u.s border and so you have this buildup under the certain post 9-11 rubric but it's it's mainly the arsenal is aimed at the immigrant and so the immigrant so basically you know you have the kind of anti-immigrant um sentiment that's that's kind of behind the veil of that 
the my sense is your book describes an imperialism that is I guess I mean, you know, we hear different sort of variants on on imperialism, right? Like this is a softer imperialism or it's more sur- surgical or you know, but, but give me your sense of how our immigration policy. I mean, so our immigration policy has obviously domestic implications, but it it also has these these broader international ones. It, it, it basically uh, define and describe for us this notion of of border imperialism or imperialism via an extension of almost the malleability of borders, not so much in giving up territory, but in some ways in taking territory. Right. So, yeah. um, So the idea of if if border imperialism, if you will, um, the, the, when you look around the world in different places, um, if you follow, you know, U.S. policy, for example, uh, anywhere really around the world. Um, uh, to, to, you know, Iraq is a good example for the Middle East or, you know, the Israel-Palestine as well. Um, but also if you look in Central America, uh, the central, you know, the long, you know, processes of U.S. militarism, the economic models that have been shaped, uh, economic policy in in places like Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras that really have privileged U.S. corporations going way back to when the United Fruit Company, you know, ruled in in Guatemala and Honduras. Those sorts of things that have marginalized many, many, many people. Um, and then if people are to you know, stand up to those sorts of um, situations. Well, then the iron fist comes down. In Central America, you, the the wars of the the conflicts of the 1970s and 1980s really show show that the dictatorships that were sponsored by the United States, or even you know the coups that were instigated by the United States. So one of the things that you see, you know, when you have a policies, um, you know, throughout the world that that um can cause upheavals that can um really marginalize people that could, could, could you know could create a lot of people in dire situations of poverty or create a lot you know help at least impact different situations of violence that people are in and then there's going to be a certain amount of blowback or even a lot of blowback um in a world in that sort of world of dramatic inequality right when you look at you know, when to go back to the kind of 1% versus the 99% um, sort of paradigm, the, the in order for a status quo where, you know, the wealthy keep getting richer, the, the poor maintain, you know, their status, uh, to keep a status quo um, like that intact, well, there has to be a whole kind of system of control. And I think that's where you know, the kind of analysis or the contextualization of the of the global border apparatus has to be seen. And then on top of that, you have to look at the ecological situations that are happening, especially as the globe heats up and different places are getting more and more impacted um, by droughts and sea level rise and extreme weather and that sort of thing that exacerbate situations of, you know, if you're poor and you're in Guatemala and a drought happens and you don't and you can't you know your crops will then you're then you're screwed really you have to you have to think of something 
I mean, there's there's obviously like a huge parallel here with the way that uh, some people describe our carceral state as um, our police force is basically mopping up uh, the problems created by the inequality and perhaps racism that we have in society that um, creates a segment of the population that will need to be controlled because they've been uh, exploited and left out of the upside to our society. Exactly. I think you hit the nail on the head there. If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. You know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies, owned by the richest dude in the world, that one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, I know some of you do. Or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case, you might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to. But if you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, I promise it does, and the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time. Of course, you really can't tell the story of Latinos in America without dealing with the Mexican population. Because Mexicans are by far the largest group of the Latino population in the United States. Most people are not aware that since 1820, when the United States first started gathering immigration statistics, there has been no nation in the world that has sent more people to the United States than Mexico. And we're talking about legal immigration. More legal Mexican immigrants have come to this country since 1820 than the Irish, than the Germans, than the French, than any other population. The reality is that great swaths of the United States and the West were originally part of Mexico. California, Nevada, parts of Utah, Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado. That was all the northern territory of Mexico. And there were Mexican citizens living on that land before it became part of the United States. As they say in, in South Texas or in, in northern New Mexico, southern Colorado, we didn't cross the border. The border crossed us. Mexico was quite aware that the U.S. was coming. Historian and political analyst Lorenzo Meyer. And that they were willing to expand themselves everywhere possible, especially in those areas of North America that formerly belonged to Spain, then to Mexico, but were empty, almost empty. It was a very tempting piece of land there. Mexico City said, well, we cannot really defend the northern part of our new republic unless we have a 
demographic push there. But we don't have enough people in Mexico to fill that empty space. Why don't invite foreigners? Why don't invite Catholic foreigners? The Irish that were already coming to the U.S. Let us receive them with open arms. But at the end, they were not Irish. They were not Catholic. And they brought the slaves. Most of the settlers who moved into Texas came from the southern states. Many of them were slave owners themselves. So they naturally saw Texas as an area for expansion of slavery in America. But as more Americans moved into Texas, they suddenly began confronting the reality that the Mexican government had abolished slavery. The admission of Texas and then the Mexican-American War that followed is really a war to expand slavery in America. It was a short but vicious war. Once General Scott captures Mexico City and other U.S. troops occupy California, New Mexico, and the other northern territories of Mexico, the big question arises, how much of this territory is the United States going to keep? Why did they decided to go back? The possibilities of contamination, physical as well as cultural contamination, could be a real danger for the U.S. So let us move out of Mexico. Let us move out of the territory in which we can find Mexicans. We don't want a Mexico with Mexicans. Eventually, Congress decides to absorb as much territory as possible with the fewest people. But that leaves few hands to mine the resources. From the very beginning, the West depended for its labor on Mexicans. So that our wealth and prosperity here is not only due to the labor of the original settlers, but is also due to those Americans who were conquered. Then comes the depression, unemployment skyrockets, a furor arises over competition by Mexican labor for jobs, and the Hoover administration initiates a massive deportation program. As many as a million Mexicans were just loaded onto trains and shipped out of the country. Some estimates are that as many as 60% of those deported were actually American citizens. There's been a pattern now for the last hundred years of Mexicans being recruited into the country and then shipped back out of the country. Recruited into the country, shipped back out of the country. The reality is that it's two countries but one economy. The Mexicans function as a reserve labor force in good times in America and as an expendable labor force in the bad times. People of color cannot be trusted with the vote. 
that seems to be the uh, governing principle here. That's the operative logic, yes. And yet, didn't we, in the Navasa decision, that recognized that our off-the-mainland holdings were still subject to American law, mean that the people who lived there had constitutional rights? You might think so. And the Supreme Court has to figure out what to do with this newly shaped United States. And there are a series of contentious Supreme Court cases starting in 1901 called the Insular Cases. And ultimately what the court decides is that constitutional rights apply in the mainland United States, but they don't apply in Puerto Rico. And shockingly, this is still law today. You can have rights in Puerto Rico, but they're not guaranteed by the Constitution because Puerto Rico exists in an extra-constitutional zone. That's one reason also why if you're born in American Samoa, you're not a U.S. citizen. You're born in the United States, but you're not born in the United States that's covered by the Constitution. The 14th Amendment doesn't apply to you, and therefore you're a U.S. national. But you're not a citizen. That's right. And the history of the United States' colonial empire is the history of a lot of people who are U.S. nationals and either are not U.S. citizens, have to push to become U.S. citizens, and even when they receive that citizenship, for example, Puerto Ricans have been citizens since 1917, the citizenship that they receive is statutory, i.e. it's provided by law, not by the Constitution, which also suggests that it can be taken away. One of the most clarifying things that you do in your book is to describe the trilemma that placed the central ideas of what the United States is in conflict with each other when confronted with its imperialist role. That's right. In the late 1890s, when many people in the United States are contemplating the future of the country, they realize that they can have an empire— they can have a country that's ruled by white people, and they can have a country that has representative government, but they can't get all three of them. Why not? Well, because think about it, because now the United States includes large non-white populations. So if the United States is going to continue to be Republican, Filipinos should have some kind of representative government and should have some kind of voice in the federal government of the United States. Those are the principles of republicanism. They're taxed. They should be represented. That seemed like it was a founding and core principle of the country. But there are a lot of anti-imperialists, including William Jennings Bryan, who worry about what happens to the United States if suddenly non-white people have political power. Some people try to solve this one way by allowing the expansion of the United States, but by rejecting its Republican principles. That's how Teddy Roosevelt thinks the United States should grow. It should have Republicanism for the mainland, but not for the entire country. Others, like William Jennings Bryan, seek to resolve this by not having empire, by limiting the growth of the country so that it doesn't have the problem of large non-white populations who otherwise might need political representation. And there's a really loud debate about this. And it's in some ways a tragic debate because those are usually the two positions you hear. The United States should abandon republicanism or the United States should limit itself to its contiguous borders. What you don't hear in the mainland debate is the third option. The United States should jettison white supremacy. They never considered taking white supremacy off the table. And yet they managed to reconcile these three incompatible ideas. And largely this happens by not talking a lot about the territories. So if you can brush it under the rug, the United States can still present itself to itself and to others 
as a republic, a distinctive and exceptional world power without being an empire. The maps of greater America start to go away. Literally, you can see the boxes erased. If you look at textbooks that are published by 1920, it is really hard to find a map that shows any part of the United States beyond the mainland. And in terms of press coverage, let's talk about the invisibility of the people that the U.S. had come to rule. First, statistically. So the census is the statistical self-portrait of the nation. And if you look at the census from 1910, from 1920, from 1930, the first page in the population report will say, this is the population of the United States, and here is the population of its possession. But everything after that in the census, how rural or urban is the population, how long do people live, what kind of jobs do they have, all these ways in which the United States seeks to understand itself, those calculations are implicitly just about the mainland. And the argument is that people who live in the territories are just too different to be included in the calculation. So essentially they are relegated to the shadows. You write that the only news ever reported by various channels of U.S. empire is the news of American exceptionalism and American innocence, and it's all fake. So what happens when all our news is fake, or at least fake as it is guided by a narrative of American exceptionalism and innocence? What happens when the news is fake because it's filled with the myth of American exceptionalism and the myth of American innocence? Well, we're not only grossly misinformed, but our very being, our condition, the uh, the way that we understand our conditions and the material conditions before us and the way that we respond to them are heavily influenced. I think I think the corporate media um, and the two-party uh, corporate duopoly, uh, their promotion of American exceptionalism, the myth that the United States is a force for good in the world, their promotion of American innocence, the idea that even when the United States does wrong, it in fact is just an aberration uh, the, intent, the intentions of the United States was correct. These narratives really inculcate in the population at large, but mostly white America, they inculcate this notion of superiority, this idea that um, the United States is a superior society regardless of whatever it does. And so when people, especially working people, stand up to the power structure, stand up to the class structure in the United States, they tend to leave out critical aspects of that structure because they're off limits. Uh, There's no knowledge of what's actually occurring. And the only narratives that we have are narratives that say that the United States is a force for good. And that even when, and that we just need to reform away the issues that are affecting people in the United States or that are affecting a certain subsection of people in the United States. What it really does is it, places movements, especially into boxes that um, are then much more easily influenced by Democratic Party politics, by the nonprofit industrial complex, by various forces that can use the vulnerability of the U.S. population in believing whatever the corporate media says, whatever the two-party duopoly says, especially, I'm, I'm mostly aiming this at liberals, white liberals, Democrats, um, it becomes really easy to ignore certain things, especially let's, uh, you know, the, the example of Libya, for example, the anti-war movement was silent on Libya. 
Um, and that was because the Obama administration defined it as a, not a war at all. It was it was only a war if U.S. soldiers were to die in it. So by completely rewriting international law, by positing the United States as above international law, the Obama administration was able to destroy the most prosperous and the most progressive African country on that continent at the time. And without a peep from the anti-war movement, except for the um, you know minority of those of us who have attempted to remain principled in this in this difficult period so so that is really uh, what we're up against is the fact that not only are we influenced by these ideologies and how we think about things but really how we behave and how we respond and how we get angry and then how we come to political consciousness it, it's a constant process of unlearning um, the fact that uh, you know at this time, especially, and this is why we wrote the book. This is the period where, uh, you know, millions of people are coming to realize that this system is in decline, that this system is just completely antagonistic to the interests of the majority of people who are, you know, fast and rapidly go coming into the working class. Um, and that something needs to be done about it. And so our book says that, well, we can't really do much if our solutions are going to be tainted and stained and, and manipulated by this very seductive um, ideological apparatus, American exceptionalism and innocence. How do those who believe in American exceptionalism and innocence square that with the history of slavery? Doesn't slavery prove our guilt and that the U.S. from the beginning was never innocent or exceptional. I mean, uh, slavery was a very intentional act. It wasn't just a mistake in error or some sort of aberration. It was a long-term institution within this country that propped up Wall Street for a very long time. So how do those who believe in American exceptionalism and innocence square that with the institution of slavery? Well, there are many ways that that is squared. Uh, Some would counter that, in fact, uh, slavery was not inherent to uh, the formation of the United States, that it was something that was inherited from the British crown that was uh, ultimately overthrown by the progressive American revolution, so-called progressive American revolution. And then they might say that, in fact, uh, the founding fathers and then the um, early leadership in the United States was uh, heavily uh, interested in uh, eliminating uh, slavery, and that that in and of itself uh, shows the progressive character, the, the the move toward a more perfect union, as we call it, which is so so fundamental to understanding or misunderstanding uh, U.S. history. But as we show in the book, uh, these very convenient manipulations of history, uh, the complete uh, retelling of history and revision of history to fit this very comfortable picture of showing slavery not as inherent and not um, not rooted in the formation of the United States. It's just a lie. I mean, there are prominent scholars, one of which uh, is Gerald Horn, who shows that the very reason, or at least the principal reason, why the American Revolution was even fought in the first place was because it was the colonialists. It was the so-called founding fathers and the oligarchs behind them, the slave-owning class, the slave-trading class, that was so interested in ensuring that 
the slave trade would continue when in fact it was the British crown that was incurring all sorts of losses in the Caribbean, all sorts of issues and expenses um, that uh, around the uh, system of slavery that was leading the British crown to think about how can we mitigate this? How can we reform the system of the British empire in order to create some stability? And one of the, one of the, um, one of the things that was being talked about right before the American Revolution was maybe we need to end the slave trade. And if they abolish slavery wholesale, maybe we need to end the trade because the trade is the leading to these developments such as um, uh, the uh, sweeping rebellions in the Caribbean where uh, Africans were t- chopping off the heads and overthrowing um, uh, you know, uh, settler regimes in places like Antigua. Like this was, this was the conversation in the colonialists here in the mainland where uh, the colonies were founded upon this very system and where there had been a demographic shift um, to create white majorities. This was a new trend that was happening in order to uh, curb rebellion. This, this was a real fear for the colonialists. And so that, this is historically documented and grounded. But because there has been so much manipulation around the history of the United States um, in this way, this, because it's so fundamental and the afterlives of slavery live on to this day. So there has to be this manipulation to even maintain the system of U.S. imperialism and the ideologies that justify it. In order to continue that process, uh, slavery has to be mistold and misremembered. We had the pleasure of interviewing Gerald Horn on our show, and so if anybody wants to hear our interview with him, you can just go to thisishell.com and search on Gerald Horn. That's H-O-R-N-E. I don't know if this came up in your studies, in uh, your research. Is exceptionalism unique to the United States? Is there such thing as Canadian or Russian or Chinese exceptionalism? Doesn't every nation have exceptionalism to some degree or – is that a confusion with patriotism, patriotism and nationalism? Well, I think that there's something very unique to American exceptionalism, American innocence, and that is the fact, and some would argue with me around, about this, but I, I, I do think that the United States is unique, and, and some would say this is unexceptional, but is unique in the fact that its settler colonial system was founded upon this enslavement of Africans and the genocide of indigenous peoples, and that this was really the first republic that was founded upon those systems. Uh, it was the first uh, so-called uh, settler society that created a national unity around these the cross-class interests of white supremacy. Um, empires in the past have had have uh, developed into racist uh, societies. Uh, you know, Great Britain, the empires before them, Spain all had their own racist histories, um, but they were societies that um, were formed based on mercantilism and the desire to colonize the planet. Um, and so uh, those colonies remain colonies of the British crown. This is the first society in and of itself to gain independence found, uh, based on these uh, founding systems of white supremacy um, and, and capitalism as well. So. You know, there is something exceptional in that, in the sense that, um, you know, uh, the United States has this unique history that 
makes it one of the most difficult, actually, to challenge um, because it's so entrenched in the very makeup and fabric of society. Uh, but there's also another difference to be made, I think, too, because a lot of people may read the book and think of nationalism and think of uh, what our book really does is condemn U.S. patriotism and the notion that the U.S. is exceptional because it's an exceptional country based on values uh, and that our flag represents liberty and democracy and that that is uh, what we're critiquing, and it is. However, um, that shouldn't be equated with other forms of nationalism that exist in the world. There's a lot of patriotism, I'm sure, in China. There's a lot of patriotism in Cuba, but it's of a different form. It's of a, it's a, it's of a form of overthrowing the yoke of colonialism and overthrowing the yoke of an oppressor that really breeds that form of nationalism, the experience of being colonized, which um, is not necessarily uh, disconnected from U.S. history, uh, but in the sense that the U.S. has had internal colonies, has enslaved Africans, has um, committed genocide and stolen the land of uh, several uh, and numerous uh, indigenous nations, that this uh, form of patriotism is rooted in that blood, blood-soaked history. And so there is something very unique in that. And so, yeah, we need to differentiate, I think, um, different forms of nationalism and exceptionalism based on the class interests behind them. And so uh, we root our analysis in the fact that Western liberalism generally provides the framework of the uh, for American exceptionalism and American innocence, that it was really a, a reform of those ideologies to fit the needs of the particular system here in the United States that, that ultimately was rooted in, in settler colonialism. We've just heard clips today, starting with On the Media, laying out the growth of America's empire from overseas conquest to our modern imperial pointillism. Let's Talk Native laid out the history of the doctrine of Christian discovery, basically Christian finders keepers. Making Contact, featuring the documentary Harvest of Empire, in two parts discussed one example of American intervention in South America and the racism behind the strategically drawn border between the U.S. and Mexico. The Majority Report discussed the book Empire of Borders and how we believe that the U.S. homeland constitutes basically the entire world when it comes to border security. In a second part from On the Media, we learned about the governing principle that uh, people of color cannot be trusted with the vote and the trilemma of empire, representative government, and white supremacy. And finally, we just heard This Is Hell discussing the role the idea of American exceptionalism plays in helping to clean up our messy history. Members this week will hear additional clips about the unlikely origins of our Supreme Court precedent on controlling lands outside our borders. Turns out our entire empire was literally built on piles of bird shit. Plus, more voicemails from members, which are always fun, so to hear that and all of our bonus content, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft. As I've been telling you recently, we are in greater than usual need of new members between 
increased progressive media competition, Trump fatigue syndrome that has sent many progressives away from the media altogether and onto their therapist couches, presumably, and being the type of show that doesn't just do American puffery from the left, but that actually criticizes American empire and racism. Uh, all of that means that if you are still listening and you're still on board with what we're all about, it means that by definition, you are one of the most dedicated listeners we have ever had. So if it's in your budget to support us, production costs are as high as ever and at a time when support has been spreading a bit thin. So we would really appreciate it if you could chip in each month. Again, do that at patreon.com slash best of left, which is, of course, linked in the show notes. And now... We'll hear from you, and by you, I mean Dave from Olympia, who you will forgive for uh, still being stuck in the past a bit. He, he's catching up. He's catching up. Uh, we've been hearing from him a lot in uh, the bonus episodes in a segment we're calling Back in Time with Dave from Olympia, but every once in a while, he, he chimes in on topics that are perfectly relevant to the main show as well. Oh, Jay, uh, it's Dave from Olympia. I just listened to 1298 about gun responsibility. Oh, man. It, it wasn't one of those demotivating, depressing, deflating experiences. Like, I was so angry. And not like a righteous, I'm going to go out and solve things. Just I want to, I want to, I want to lash out in some violent way because it just, it's so, it's so infuriating just the naked evil like that's it's the best word to describe what's going on because like this this is stochastic terrorism the frothing up the hate and stirring up and incendiary comment after incendiary comment and it it will cause violence and they know it will cause violence but they can stand back and say oh we had no idea that that individual in that town at this specific time would react in this way oh it's impossible but they know it will trigger violence somewhere and it's the it's the the thinnest veneer of deniability that they can spread over that and the fact that it will trigger violence somewhere but it's impossible to tell where makes it in some ways worse for the victims of this terrorism because the point of terrorism is to terrify someone and if you know all public spaces are suddenly this dangerous place and they know it's and, and, and the what was the president's quote that when hatred and oh he said something stupid oh yeah when these two factors come together it's going to lead to a shooting and so I'm going to maximize desperation by crushing the economy. I'm going to make sure there's plenty of guns everywhere, and I'm going to stir up the hatred. And, oh, who could have predicted that when those two things come together, it's going to lead to violence? Totally uh, not my fault. How could I have known? Except you just said that you knew that what you're doing is leading to these consequences. It's... Yeah, it's just maddening. Yeah, it's horrific. It's evil. There are not better words to describe what's going on in the White House.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. As you may have noticed, today's show went a little long, as it sometimes does when, when the topic just screams for more time like I, I i put in a valiant effort trying to edit it down to about an hour and sometimes i uh, i fail more miserably than others um, because I, I i couldn't figure out what to cut so today's show went a little long we didn't get as many voicemails or, or you know conversation at the end as we usually like and i just need to wrap up with a quick note about this week's weekly poll uh, on upcoming topics uh, as always each weekend keep it in mind i know that people listen late so you know if, if it's the if the weekend but you're listening to this like a week later it just means there's a different poll happens every weekend so uh if if uh, uh you want to hop onto our patreon page which is free for anyone to visit to see these polls uh you can take part in whatever poll is happening on whichever given weekend. Uh, but for this weekend, I wanted to let you know that the upcoming topic options are understanding how America causes and then reacts to immigration and refugee crises, dealing with our mental health in the age of Trump fatigue syndrome. We did an episode recently about reforming the justice system, but there are plenty of advocates out there calling for outright prison and police abolition, which I think is uh, worthy to be looked at. Even if it seems unrealistic, uh, the arguments that are being made are worthy of being heard. Uh, the forever war on terror, uh, reflections on 9-11, which of course has just passed, State of the Unions, an updated look at our labor movement, and finally, looking at the demographics of the 2020 electorate, not the candidates this time, the electorate, the rise of women, the rise of young people, the rise of people of color, and of course, the other side, the effect of evangelical Christians and uh, and others on uh, on both the right and the left of the electorate. So if you would like to have your opinion heard, there is a link to that poll in the show notes, or you can just find it by going to patreon.com slash best of the left. That is going to be it for today. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash best of left. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.